0: The following message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning worship service. Today, it is a privilege to have renowned Greek scholar Bill Mounts with us teaching from the book of Jude. Bill has just finished a weekend seminar in teaching us how to use Greek to study our Bibles. Bill is the president of biblicaltraining.org, a nonprofit organization offering world class educational resources for discipleship in a local church. Let's join Bill now in his sermon.
1: Dr. Mounts earned his B.A. in Biblical Studies at Bethel College, his M.A. at Fuller Theological Seminary, and his doctorate uh, in New Testament at Aberdeen University in Aberdeen, Scotland. He taught at Azusa Pacific for 10 years and was a professor of New Testament and director of the Greek program at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Dr. Mount served as the N.T. Chair of the ESV Bible Translation. How many of you have an ESV? All right, Doctor Mounts, your your version's not that popular, so but actually the ESV is a solid translation and I would encourage you if you want another translation, check that one out. Most recently he was the preaching pastor at a church in Spokane, Washington. Doctor Mounts is also an author, having written the best selling Greek textbook, Basics of Biblical Greek, and a number of other resources. His wife Robin and they have three children, and he and Robin live in Washugal, right? Washugal, do you know where that is? You know Washington, all right. Anyone here from Washington? No? Anyone been to Washington? Oh, there's a lot. Okay, good. But uh, most importantly, Dr. Mounts loves the Lord and he loves to bring the word, and so we're going to have him bring the word from the book of Jude. So, Dr. Mounts, please come up and let's give him a warm RBC welcome.
2: Was well, good to be here. Um, had a fun time on Friday and Saturday, kind of uh, stuffing a lot of grammar down people's throats, and trying to learn how Greek functions. And uh, what I wanted to do this morning is to, I'm going to do a little things that are a little, I don't normally do when I preach, but I wanted to show the the, the 50 Greek geeks that came over this weekend uh, kind of a, to extend what we've been doing in this seminar and show them how it applies to actually in sermons. So there'll be some things popping up on the screen that may not make any sense to you, but it does make sense to them, okay? So if, if you don't understand it, it's okay. You can just ignore it. I also want to put a very, very important uh, qualification on this sermon. Uh, Jude has some very harsh things to say about leadership in the church. Uh, Judes church had fallen apart because the leadership hadn't done their job and there is there is I am saying nothing about the leadership in this church okay they didn't bring me in to say things that your pastor can't say all right i'm not there's no double meanings here or anything okay so i don't, I don't want you to think that i'm talking about this church i'm not i'm talking about Jude's church and the mess that I was in so i want to i don't want the elders to take me out kicking and screaming and uh, I will be preaching out of the ESV. I'm sorry you don't know more about it, but you will. It's a, it's a good and a growing translation. Anyway, so let's talk about Jude, but let's pray first. Father, we would enjoy being in a world and in a church where the message of Jude's irrelevant. Where there would not be evil people, there would not be heretical teaching, where there would not be ungodliness, but Father, that would be heaven, and we know that we're not there yet. So, Father, while the message of this book is hard, it is relevant and important, and I pray that you give me clarity of speech, and I pray that you give the people an openness and a willingness to hear about the kinds of things that can happen when your people get off focus, when they don't stay focused on the things that you would have us to be focused on. In Jesus' name, amen. Is there ever a time to fight for theological issues? Is there, I, I, I envision those big boxing gloves we give to our little kids that, you know, they're about this big and, and you can hit each other and it doesn't hurt too much. And, uh, but is there ever a time to take those off? And is there ever a time to fight for biblical truth? All right. <laughs> Many answer the question. And I'm not saying you do because I don't know you. Many answer that question I have found more out of personality than theological conviction. And that's why this is something that everyone needs to really think about. You know, for some people's personality, it's peace at all costs. And they're not going to fight over anything. And what we do is we kind of code it and we call, oh, I'm going to extend grace to that person. But truth be known, it's often just a lack of conviction and enabling that's speaking and not theological conviction. Of course, there's other people whose personalities lead them to fight over anything and everything. It doesn't matter how small or major the theological truth is, they're going to go to the mat for it. And, and they call it standing for the truth. But truth be known, sometimes it's just an, an excuse to argue and to exert control over other people. But theologically, is there ever a time to fight for the theological truths of Scripture? And the book of Jude answers that question with a yes, but then it helps us understand when we fight and how we fight. Jude starts in a very traditional format, most letters, the ancient letters always had three parts where the author identified himself, identifies the recipient, and then extends uh, an offer of grace, a, a blessing to them. So Jude starts out. Jude he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. and He's also a brother of James. So Jude was raised with Jesus as his big brother. Then he writes, to those who are, and then there's a series of three. And if you do this all the way through Jude, you'll find out he loves threes. Almost everything is done in threes in Jude. But he says, to those who are called, so these are the elect, to those who are beloved in God the Father, and to those who are kept for, and then the footnote in the ESV says, or by, which I think is accurate, kept by Jesus Christ. And then he goes into the greeting, uh, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. It's really interesting how Jude starts this letter, because it's very typical in New Testament letters, isn't it, The writer gives a hint as to what is to come. I mean, Paul almost always does this in his letters, that he knows where he's going, so he starts to drop some ideas, foreshadowing, as my ninth grade English teacher would say it. And this is what's going on in the salutation. Jude has some really hard things to say. He has some things that are very confrontive to say. He has some things that if the people are not careful, they're going to be discouraged with what he has to say. And so he wants to remind them up front that, first of all, you're called. Okay, God is involved in your salvation. He has called you to himself. He is involved in your life. You matter to him. You're you're beloved to him. He loves you. You just don't love him. He loves you. Remember that when you get in these difficult verses, I'm about to say, Judas saying, you are beloved and you are kept. You are, there's a lot of stuff about sin in this passage, in this book. There's a lot about falling into sin, of falling away from the truth. And Jude wants to remind the church right up front that you, got, you have Jesus on your side, that he is keeping you, he is watching over you, he is persevering with you so that you can persevere with the truth. And so it's, it's an ominous book that's coming, but he wants at to, to, the very beginning to set it up the right way so the people don't get discouraged, okay? So that's what's going on in the salutation. He then gets into the occasion for writing. In verse 3, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Paul wanted to write about their common faith. He wanted to write about what held them together would bound them together and one of the things i'm looking forward to doing in heaven is finding jude and saying, i would really like to see that letter i mean i saw this letter this one's dark it's depressing if you're not careful i'd really like to see how jude encourages people and he said that's what i wanted to write i wanted to write about our common faith i wanted to encourage you but i can't something has happened there's been a demographic shift in the church That Jude is serving and he he can't write about what he wants to rather he said I have to write to urge you to contend for the faith now the word translated contend is much stronger than contend contend is a weak word Uh, contend does it doesn't elicit the kind of fervor the kind of strength Uh, that that is going to be necessary to do what the church is supposed to do. You can see it in the NASB and in the Net Bible, where they're translating it, contend earnestly. Do you see that, NASBers? What the translators are doing, they're trying to say, this word means more than contend. I mean, you've really got to work hard at this. And the TEV translation actually translates this as fight. And I think that that's closest to the meaning of this word. I always encourage people to read more than one Bible. Again, you you can see things like this popping up. Jude is telling the church that there is a time to take the kid's gloves off and to duke it out. There are times in which you have to fight for the faith. But the question is, fight about what? Well, I just gave the answer. You're supposed to fight about the faith. Now, I think when we hear faith, we think of our faith response to Christ, right? Or we, we think about our faith in him as we live our lives, and that's certainly the main use of the word. But the word faith is also used in the Bible to, to designate a creed, a set of doctrinal beliefs, the faith, the creed, uh, the orthodox faith that we believe, these, this, this set of doctrines and beliefs. And Paul is uh, <laughs> Jude is saying that you have to be willing to fight for the core doctrines, the doctrines that were once for all delivered to the saints. It says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and to de- who deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is what's happened in the church. People have come in and they have attacked the core doctrine that was once for all delivered to the saints, the the essential doctrine. We're not talking about secondary things here. We're not talking about things that we can agree to disagree on. You know, eschatology, I would say, Uh, whether you should sing hymns or not. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that people argue about. That's not what Jude's talking about. What Jude is talking about are the core doctrines. And... So what's happened is that these people have come in to the church and they have brought these core doctrines into question. Notice how he says certain people. The Bible rarely names their opponents. Every once in a while you see Paul give a name, Alexander, Hymenaeus, this kind of stuff. That's very unusual. Normally the writers just say some people, certain people. They don't want to give any dignity to these people by by actually naming them. But they say certain people have, and they, the ESV is, have crept in. The word actually means to sneak. These people are sneaks. They didn't walk in the front door and tell people who they are. They snuck in the back door. They, 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 they crept in quietly so people wouldn't know who they really are. And what we're going to see as we get a little further into Jude was that, in fact, these people had become leaders in the church. That was the problem. And, in fact, Jude says, they're not even true followers of Christ. They're non-Christians. So the problem in Jude's church, not this church, (laughs) the problem in Jude's church is that certain people had snuck in, they had pulled the wool over people's eyes, they had slowly moved into positions of leadership, and then they, then they started taking the wool off and people started seeing who they really were. You know, there's always going to be opposition to the gospel. If it's a healthy church, you'll always have opposition to the gospel. And I welcome the opposition that comes from the outside. I don't know how you feel about this, but when opposition comes from outside the church, it's so much easier to deal with. You know, we live in a postmodern culture that says there's no such thing as truth. Everything is relative. And, and I see that coming in, and you can see it infiltrating the church, and that's okay because we can handle that. We say, no, there is truth. There is a character of God. There is the behavior of God. That is what determines what is holy. That is what determines what is just. I mean, you, you, can, you can handle the opposition that comes in from the outside pretty easily because you can define it. But in my experience, and in my experience of talking to a lot of people, is that the majority of the conflict that churches have to deal with, the most dangerous kind of conflict is when it comes from within the church. The most dangerous kind of opposition to the gospel is when people sneak in, wolves and sheep's clothing, and start to infiltrate the church. In Acts 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, and he's saying, you know, after I leave, wolves are going to come in, and they're going to try to destroy the flock of this church. And when you read the pastoral epistles, First uh, and 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy especially, you can see that that's exactly what happened. Ephesus was the church where Paul spent most of his time at, that we know of, and he had left, and he had made this prophecy. The wolves came in, And the church got so bad that Paul had to send Timothy to Ephesus to try to clean up the mess. The wolves in sheep's clothing coming in, moving into positions of leadership and teaching things that were wrong and behaving in ungodly ways. And I think that really, while Acts 20 is a prophecy about the Ephesians church, it really is a paradigm for what usually happens. This is the standard way in which churches are destroyed. People coming in sneaking in gaining positions of power in one place or another and then doing what they do so acts 20 really does become a paradigm i think for what happens in jude's church there were two things specifically that were told that these people were teaching the first is they were perverting the grace of our god into sensuality let me find my verse and actually read it um They perverted the grace of our God, yeah, into sensuality. What they were doing, evidently, is that they were teaching that because God is a God of grace, holiness doesn't matter. Because God is a God of grace, you can sin all you want. Because God is a God of grace and will forgive your sins, holiness doesn't matter, and you can live as sensual a life as you want, and it doesn't matter because God's going to forgive. The same thing comes up in Romans 6, doesn't it? Should we continue in sin that grace can abound? Paul says, people are accusing us of saying, sin all you want, because the more you sin, the more God forgives, and the more that people can see what a gracious God he is. And that was what Paul was being accused of, and he attacks it. So this is a a common refrain in the New Testament. And that's actually what was going on in Jude's church. They had taken the doctrine of the grace of God, his willingness to forgive, and we're teaching that that it was okay then to live sensual, sinful, unholy lives because God's going to forgive us. So one of the answers, one of the questions of, of one of the answers to the question of when do you fight for the faith, is that you fight for the faith when someone says that holiness doesn't matter. This is the whole area of sanctification. You you fight for the faith when people say it's okay to live in sin. God's just going to forgive. The image that has been very powerful to me the last couple of years is Jesus of the gate and path. And he talks about that you leave the broad road and you have to go through the gate, which is the conversion experience, and then you walk the, the narrow, the difficult road, and the, the, the word actually means it's a road full of hardships and persecutions. And then at the end of that path is eternal life. And... He, for so many years the evangelical church in america has been totally focused on the gate and everything has been about the gate you've got to get a conversion experience and that's really important isn't it you, you can't get to eternal life without going through the gate uh, you you have to come to a point in your life where you understand that god in christ did for you what you cannot do for yourself that on cross Jesus uh, fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, that he satisfied God's wrath against sin and made it available, the forgiveness available to you and me. And you, we have to come to the point of understanding that we have to trust him for our sins, to trust him for our life, to trust him for everything. That's going through the gate, and we have to do that. But we're at a time, and Jude's church is at a time, and I think the American evangelical church is at a time also where we need to understand that the, that the path is important. And, and the, the battle that, that I have fought so much is with people who say everything on the path is optional. Hey, I raised my hand, that's all that matters. I, I, I said the magic prayer, that's all that matters. And I'd say, there's a gate and there's a path, and Jesus says it's those who persevere to the end will be saved. And there's this whole tension of justification and sanctification. And what's going on in Jude's church is that they were teaching the path is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Sanctification doesn't matter. God's going to forgive. So that's one reason that we fight. Another reason we fight is in the last phrase, that these people deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It's not real clear what jude is saying i wish he'd been a little more specific but it's the basic area of what we call christology it's it's the basic area of who is jesus is he god or is he not and it would appear that the the troublemakers in jude's church were denying uh, they had a de- um, Sorry, slipping into my academic mode i'm sorry uh, they have a defective christology they, they have a view of christ that is not accurate And so he's telling us that that another way in which we fight for the faith is when people don't fully understand who Jesus is. So you fight for the faith when someone teaches that Jesus is Satan's brother. You fight for the faith when someone teaches that Jesus is just the Son of God, but he's not God. You fight for the faith when people say that Jesus was a created being. You fight for the faith when people say that Jesus was a prophet. You fight for the faith when, Jesus, when people say that Jesus was just a good person. Okay, these are all defective Christologies. These are all inaccurate pictures of who Jesus is. So those are the two of the hints that Jude gives us as to when we should fight. That we should fight. And that we should fight when sanctification is at, at stake. When people are saying that holiness doesn't matter. And we should be willing to fight when people's understanding of who Jesus is is wrong. So those are, those are the guidelines that Jude gives us. What he does then, he goes into a, a very dark description of these elders and, and, and church leaders. He goes into a, a depressing... I mean, these, these are ugly verses. These are not the verses that you'll uh, have engraved on wood and hanging in your kitchen. Okay, That's, that's not what's going on in, in Jude. Jude. But what he wants to do is to describe these his opponents and in the very way in which he describes them, he is condemning them. He wants the church to see that these people are wrong and then they have to be willing to fight them in these issues. And we're going to look in detail at the first couple of descriptions and then I have to skip uh, most of them. But he starts by, in verse five, he says, now I want to remind you although you once fully knew it, in other words, I'm just telling you things you already know, at least you used to know, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, Jude is referring to the generation of the Exodus, Uh, the Jewish nation that had the immense privilege of seeing God work. They saw the plagues come. They saw the escape from Egypt. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They stood at the base of Sinai and watched it shake when the presence of God descended. They, They saw God destroy all of the Canaanites and give the promised land to the Israelites. An incredible generation of privilege, and yet they did not continue in their faith, and they were destroyed. And perhaps Jude's thinking of the 3,000 that were killed in the incident of the golden calf. Perhaps he's thinking of the generation that was killed when they wouldn't believe that God would give them the land and God made them wander for another 40 years. But the point is that here were these people, people of immense privilege, who saw God work, and yet when they sinned, they were still punished. Verse 6, he goes to another group. He says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Kind of an awkward passage, but probably what he's referring to are the angels that followed Satan when Satan rebelled against God. Again, these are beings of immense privilege, beings who lived in the very presence of God, who knows how long maybe thousands and thousands of years we just don't know but beings of immense privilege and yet when they sinned when they didn't persevere when they rejected God they too were punished and then the third group is you know it's kind of like you can't talk about sin in the Bible without getting to Sodom and Gomorrah and so you get down to verse 7 just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What do these three groups have in common? Well, they have two things in common. Number one, they serve as an illustration that sin is always punished. Always punished. It doesn't matter who you are. That, again, the assumption is if you haven't repented. That doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what kind of privileges you've been able to enjoy, that unrepentant sin is followed by punishment. No exceptions. It's always easy to think that we're the exception, isn't it? Oh, I, I can go to that porn site on the web and it, it won't affect me. I, I'm the exception. I mean, after all, you know, I'm a deacon in the church. Or, you know, I, I, can, I can cheat on my taxes. It, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it, you know, I didn't, you know. I didn't vote for him anyway. You know, I don't know. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I'm trying to think of examples. Yeah, but we, we all think that we're exceptions, don't we? We all think that we can do things. I, I, I can flirt with my boss. That's okay. I'm happily married. It's just part of the human nature. We always think that we're the exception to the rule. And Jude's saying, These elders, these church leadership, I should say, they think they're the exception to the rule. They think they can live ungodly lives. But the children of Israel were punished for their sin. The angels were punished for their sin. Sodom and Gomorrah were punished for their sin. Why do you think that you're going to be the exception? The other thing that these three groups have in common is the whole issue of perseverance. And just so you know, I am reformed in my theology. I'm... um, very comfortable with Reformed theology. But I also understand that the Bible calls for perseverance. That we walk through the gate and we walk the path and eternal life is at the end of the path, not the gate. And these leaders in the Jude's church did not finish well. They did not finish well. They did not persevere in their faith. They fell into heretical teachings. They fell into ungodly behavior and while it is critical to start well because if we don't start well if we don't go through the gate if if we're not changed into a new creation if we're not empowered by the holy spirit then everything else is going to fail we have to go through the gate but we also have to understand that changed people must live changed lives by the power of the spirit and that's that's what jude's getting at we must persevere the jewish nation didn't persevere They were punished. The angels didn't persevere. They were punished. Sodom and Gomorrah sinned. They were punished. See, what Jude is telling the church is don't presume on God's grace. Don't think that you're the exception. Don't think that your sin doesn't matter. Don't think that even if you started well, it doesn't matter now. We have to finish well. Paul says what? I continue to pummel my body. Lest having preached the gospel to others, I be denied the reward. Even Paul understood, I should say, even Paul, Paul understood that changed people live changed lives. And he had to continue to walk in faith, to walk in love, to walk in obedience to Christ, and to continue to believe the things that God had taught him about himself. That's the first chunk of information in this description, and it gives you a feel for really how dark Jude's church had become. The description goes on through, depending upon how you run your outlines, uh, probably through verse 19, and there's just a couple of things that I want to uh, point out to kind of to fill out the problems that Jude's church was having. Look at verse 8, please. Yet, in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. The important phrase is uh, relying on their dreams. The, The NASB says dreamers, right? Yeah, dreamers, good. What the bad guys were doing in Jude's church was that they weren't relying on the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. They weren't relying on the teachings, the apostolic gospel, the message that had come from Jesus through the apostles to the church. They weren't, they weren't relying on that to determine what they believed, but rather they were relying on their dreams. I had a dream. And I feel it's okay to do this, or I feel it's okay to believe this. Same problem Paul has in Colossians 2. Uh, people were taking their stands on dreams. They were, they were in their dreams coming up with ideas that were contradictory to the apostolic message. And when they compared the two, they went with their dreams and not the apostolic message. They were relying on their dreams. I think it's possible to, to broaden this concept a little. And I think that the essential conflict that Jude's talking about, is the conflict between what I want to believe and what God believes. You know, whether I, I come to my faith through a dream or some other reason, don't we all have a tendency to take my best thoughts, your best thoughts, and compare them to God's best thoughts? And sometimes we go, no, I like my idea better. I'm seeing how many honest people go to church here.
0: Wow. Yeah.
2: Paul says that as far as it depends upon you be at peace with all people. He understands that there's some people you just you're not going to be at peace with. That's okay. But let's say you've sinned against someone. Whose responsibility is it to solve that problem? You. If somebody sins against you, whose responsibility is it to deal with that? You, right? You know the verses? Yeah, we get it both directions, don't we? You know, you, you and can't, you can't dump it. i say, no, if, um, if your brother has sinned against you and you're offering your, your uh, offering at the, at the altar, leave it and go. Be reconciled. Don't, don't insult God by making an offering when there's a, a conflict that can be solved. But boy, we don't like that, do we? He is a jerk. He hurt me, and he may have. He may have wounded you deeply. I've never liked him. He bothers me. I don't like what he did to that. We 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 come up with so many excuses where either they have something against us or we have something against them, and we're going to grind our whatever the expression. We're going to dig our heels in, and we're going to say no. He's got to do it. And our faces over the years become hard and etched and angry, but we're not going to give. In heard about a, a church locally up in Vancouver. One of my old students, actually from Gordon Conwell, is the pastor, and they are having all kinds of troubles. And they brought peacekeepers in. And uh, and then in the next week, right in the middle of John's sermon, a man stood up and said, "I have something to say." And John John's pretty young; he's about 26 27 and he wasn't sure what to do. But he said, "Okay." And the man turned and addressed another man on the other side of the church and said, "I'm sorry." I've sinned against you. I've hated you for 15 years. You hurt me, I hurt you, and will you forgive me? You can't talk about this stuff without feeling the deep pain. And for 15 years, they worshiped together. And for 15 years, they took communion together. And for 15 years, they examined their hearts before communion, and they ignored the fact that they had violated God's teaching. How do you do that? I have a dream and my ideas are better than God's ideas. Well, this is what's going on in Jude's church, and it's why it was so, so wrong. See, there's a little bit of Jude's church in all of us, isn't there? A little bit, at least, in all of us. Going on to verse 12, you can see another interesting uh, fact. Unfortunately, Paul... paul jude in describing these people says these are hidden reefs at your love feast you get together for your potlucks and they're coral reefs ripping the bottom out of your ships <laughs> i love the way jude uses words anyway there are hidden reefs at your love's feast as they feast with you without fear and then the esv translates and the niv something like it shepherds feeding themselves this is i mean normally the NESB gets these it admits this metaphor the, the word actually is a shepherd, and it's a very important word because these people were to be shepherds. And what do shepherds do? They take care of their sheep. They, they feed their sheep. Who are the shepherds in Scripture? The leadership. This is the strongest uh, statement in Jude that these, that these troublemakers had come in, and it was as leaders in the church that they were destroying the church. 17 to 19. He adds, don't be surprised. And this is one of those lessons that uh, every church needs to pay attention to. In fact, Lou said to me after the first service, he said, this is a great message for a healthy church. And this is the verses he was talking about. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you that in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And Jude's saying you shouldn't have been surprised. You should have known that this was going to happen. You should never have underestimated the power of sin because the wolves are always there. They're always waiting to sneak into your church. And in the case of Jude's church, they were devoid of the Spirit. They weren't even believers. They weren't even followers of Jesus Christ. And yet because Jude's church, hopefully at one time was healthy, wasn't careful. And I guess this is my word to you. Don't ever let your guard down. This is how churches are destroyed one after another after another. I proposed a book to my publisher once. I said, I'm going to write a book on why save the lost when you can fight with the saved. (laughs) And the unfortunate thing is they said, write it, we'll publish it. (laughs) There is such an audience for that topic because so many churches have not been cautious and the error has come in and they've lost their love for the Lord and their love for for the gospel. So he goes through this very, very dark, sinister description. But he can't end there. I mean, that would be a terrible preacher if that's where you went into sermon. And he says, basically, in light of how ugly it is, I still am going to call you to persevere. You need to persevere. You need to hang in there. You need to fight the good fight. You, you need to not give in to what these people are doing. And there's three ways in which... Um, Jude tells the people that they are to continue the fight for the faith. Uh, The first one is in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep yourself in the love of God. In other words, commit yourself to holiness. God doesn't want us wandering off either side of the path. He wants us in the middle of the path. He wants us to be committed to holiness. He wants us to, to be committed to understanding his character and his will and becoming the kind of people and living the kind of lives that are in conformity to that. This is how you resist evil, evil people. This is how you fight for the faith. Now, it probably sounds a little strange, doesn't it? I remember the first time I saw this phrase, What do you mean, keep yourself in the love of God? I I thought Paul told us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, right? Romans 8. Now, this is part of exegesis. This is what you have to do in theology, and that is you you take all these verses and find a way to hold them together. And the way you balance these doctrines is what uh, Paul does in Philippians 2. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. When I was saved, when you were saved, you did not help God. You were dead at the time. You were a sinner, dead in your trespasses and sin. He didn't need your help. He didn't want your help. Okay? I'm reformed in my theology. But when it comes to the issue of sanctification, he expects us to make use of the power of the Spirit, to abide in him, to be obedient to him, to bear fruit. And he's with you. He's with me. He's directing us. He's guiding us. He's helping us. But we have to do it as well. And we can err from the love of God. It's always there, but we can err off the path. And that's when the troubles start. So one of the calls to perseverance is don't err from the path. Stay committed to holiness. Stay committed to the character of God. And you do this by building yourself up in your most holy faith. It means you learn your gospel. You learn your theology. You go to Greek geek class. You know, you you do those things so that you know what you believe, but more than just that, if you stop there, you're just a Pharisee. You take what you believe, and it changes your life by the power of the Spirit. And you not only think the things of God, but you start becoming like God and acting like God. You build yourself up in your faith, and you pray in the Holy Spirit. This is not a charismatic utterance. This is, this is what happens for all Christians. This is Romans 8. This is knowing that even when I don't know how to pray for something, that the Spirit is always with me, and when my words cannot express the deepest longings of my heart, is Romans 8, that it's the Spirit who intercedes with groans that are too deep for words. Okay, this is not speaking in tongues. This is, this is God's Spirit being the bridge between my Spirit and God the Father, praying for me in ways that I, when I can't do it any longer. It's a reassurance that I'm never ever alone. So that's one way you do it. The, The second call to perseverance, briefly, is this in verses 22 to 23, that we must have the courage to fight. We have to have the courage to fight. And so he says, have mercy on those who doubt. In other words, there will be people in the church that are, are being swayed by these false teachers, but they haven't committed themselves to that yet, and they haven't started living ungodly lives, and, and don't beat them over the head, all right? A, um, mercy is more effective than a harsh rebuke, and so there are some people that we need to have mercy on and be gentle with and talk with and encourage But secondly, he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. It's probably a reference to people who've already committed themselves to the teaching of the false teachers, whose lives are starting to go away from God, and you have to be much more aggressive. This is intervention. This is aggressively going after someone and shaking them and saying, what is wrong with you? Do you not know where you're headed? Do you you not know that you will be punished for your sin? It's a much more aggressive position. And then thirdly, and again, this is interpretive, but this is where most of the commentaries come out. He concludes, to others, and the others probably are the false teachers themselves, show mercy, probably pray for God's mercy for them. No one is ever beyond salvation. Show mercy, but do it with fear. Sometimes if you're with evil people, the evil rubs off, doesn't it? And you need to fear that evil. You you need to fear evil when you are with evil people because you are no exception, it's going to affect you if God does not protect you and you are aware of, his, of Satan's schemes. So there's some practical steps there. But then finally, and most importantly, we get to the doxology. And th- some people view the doxology as kind of tacked on to the end of Jude. It actually is the whole key to Jude. Everything in that Jude's trying to say is wrapped up in the doxology. Not a him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Before all time and now and forever. When you read Jude, it's really easy to get discouraged. And when you're in a church like Jude, it's really easy to bag it and leave. Because it's too evil. It's too ugly. I don't have the strength to fight it. I just, I can't do this. And what the doxology is saying, and Jude ends with this, is you're right. You can't fight it. This is nothing that you can do on your own. You can't keep yourself from stumbling. You can't keep yourself on the path. You're a created being. It is God who does it. And so he ends this difficult letter with a praise to the God that it is he who is able to keep you from stumbling. Remember back in the salutation, we're kept by Jesus. We're kept for Jesus. That, that God is at work in our life. Well, here it's, it's God who is able to keep you from stumbling. Who is able to present you blameless on the day of judgment. And To him be all glory, honor, and praise. That's the message of Jude. The message of Jude is that there, is things, there are things worth fighting for and it can be ugly and it can be a dirty fight you have to be prepared you have to know your faith you have to you have to be living in godliness you have to be living listening to the spirit but when that when the battle comes you have to be willing to go toe to toe and my my encouragement to you is that it will come i mean i hear great things about this church i mean pastor lou has just has never stopped praising you ever since i've known him i mean he loves this place and he loves you And and he's talked about all the steps that you have taken to become the kind of church that you are, and that's really good. But Satan's right outside the door, you all. He's right outside the door. And to think that he's not is to be foolish and dangerous. And there is a long string of thousands of churches that let their guard down. And certain people snuck in, moved to positions of leadership, and then based their teaching on their dreams and not the apostolic message. So be strong. Be strong individually and be strong as a church, trusting the Lord the whole way. That's my word for you. Let's pray. Father, again, we repeat, especially after looking at Jude, that what we would really like is to be home in heaven. Uh, What we'd really like is to have heaven on earth, perhaps. What we'd like is to be in a situation where we can love you perfectly. Where we can love our brothers and sisters perfectly. Whether if there's, if there's conflict, that we would go to them or they would go to us. Oh, to live in a church that would be like that. And Father, we understand that is not our nature. And that is not our churches. And Father, I pray for these, my brothers and sisters, that they be strong in you. That they be strong in their understanding of your character and your will, what we call theology, that they be strong in their trust and reliance on you. And when conflict does come, and it will come from inside this church, Father, may they go toe-to-toe and fight for something that is so worth fighting for, and that is the truth of your gospel, and that holiness really does matter. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: .ranchobaptistchurch.org that's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org have a great day in the lord and god bless you as you continue to walk with him